Uh, good morning. About this time uh, last year, I was uh, here for a meeting, and I was given a card by a member of the Divinity School faculty, uh, which had uh, the card had prayers on either side. On one side was a prayer uh, for healing for Richard Hayes and Kate Bowler. Uh, and on the other side of the card was a prayer for the search for the Divinity School's next dean. I placed this card in my Bible, uh, and every now and then I would see it, and my eyes would stay with a particular phrase. We ask your blessing upon Duke Divinity School that it may continue to be a center for sound learning, new discovery, faithful service, and through all this for the pursuit of holy wisdom. I'm honored to introduce uh, the person who is called for such a time as this, and with the conviction that in God's mercy, our prayers were answered. Elaine Heath is the newly installed uh, Dean of the Divinity School, having come to us from Southern Methodist University's Perkins School of Theology, where she was the Macrelis Professor of Evangelism. She earned her Ph.D. at Duquesne University in Systematic Theology. Duquesne is known for its strengths, especially in the academic study of Christian spirituality. After being ordained as an elder in the East Ohio Conference of the United Methodist Church and serving as a pastor, she then taught at Ashland Theological Seminary, and she began to write about the power of God and God's Spirit in context that we often ignore. In the witness of the mystic Phoebe Palmer, in the way Scripture is read among survivors of sexual abuse, and in the essential need for mysticism in the practice of evangelism. I first came to know about Elaine Heath when I was given her book, Longing for Spring, which she wrote with Scott Kisker. I was given this book by my friend and neighbor, District Superintendent John Boggs. He was in Asheville and I was in Lake Junaluska. It was the middle of the summer, and we had both been invited to a new church development seminar in South Texas. Now, I tried when I received that invitation to imagine leaving the coolness of the mountains of western North Carolina for the heat of South Texas in July. And finally, I just could not imagine doing that, and I did not. But John made that journey, and he connected with Elaine Heath, who was a keynote speaker, and when he returned, he called me, and we began to read Longing for Spring together. And this is what Elaine Heath's work meant to me. Here is a person who has moved through the experience of trauma, and cynicism, who cared enough about the tradition of the church to immerse herself deeply in it, and who then had the creativity and vision 
to reimagine every conceivable facet of the United Methodist Church and, and the church beyond us, of course. Our ordination and appointive practices, our parsonages and camps, our large and small churches, itineracy and episcopacy and connectionalism. She reimagined everything in a more hopeful and faithful and missional way. This led to her being in residence in the mountains for a portion of her sabbatical, and during that time she befriended many of the pastors and leaders in that region. This led to the birth of the Missional Wisdom Foundation. This led to new forms of church and fresh winds of the Spirit. And in God's providence, all of this led to a new season in the Divinity School's history. And one that seems amazingly aligned with our past, our present, and our future. Duke is a school that is itself immersed deeply in the Christian tradition. Dean Heath knows this tradition, but she knows it well enough to hear voices that have not always been heard or honored. She knows that our great tradition, like the mountains to our west and the rivers to our east, that this great tradition has many living streams, streams of mysticism and activism and pneumatology, streams of monasticism and holiness and grace. And Elaine Heath has not only thought and written about these streams of tradition, she has actually had the courage to step into these streams and to alter the flow of their currents. And this has been for the good of us all. And I would say this is leadership. I'm so excited about where we find ourselves as a gathered community that has, in diverse ways, all of us been shaped by this school. I trust that God has answered our prayers and has blessed us. And, of course, for that larger purpose, sound learning, new discovery, faithful service, and through all this, the pursuit of holy wisdom. Would you join me in welcoming the Dean of the Divinity School of Duke University, Elaine Heath. Thank you, Bishop Carter, for that wonderful introduction. It's great to be in North Carolina and live here now. <laughs> I've been involved, as Bishop Carter mentioned, uh, in the church in western North Carolina in particular for a number of years. And my husband and I came to feel that this was our second home. Now it's our first home. <laughs> so having been 
Involved in the church in North Carolina for a number of years, when I survey the ecclesiastical landscape across the state and in a number of cities, I see the same challenges that face congregations from coast to coast as the church in the United States struggles to make sense of its context, its rapidly changing context. We live in the midst of massive cultural shifts brought about by globalization, rapidly changing communication and information technology, consumerism, the increasing gap between the rich and the poor with a shrinking middle class, and unprecedented threats to the entire biosphere due to war, pollution, disease, poverty, and disasters related to climate change. Linked to these tectonic shifts is the fact that Christendom, the marriage of the church with secular and military power in order to get what it wants, is all but over in the global north and west. We are in a post-denominational, post-Christendom United States. Even in the Bible Belt of the southern United States, the church is irrevocably moving toward the margins of society. There we will no longer enjoy the privileges of Christendom, but it's good news. We will have the opportunity to become a prophetic people once again. From the margins, we will experience new opportunities and challenges in making disciples. The biggest challenge to the church in the United States today is to recover a missional identity so that congregations understand and embrace their disciple-making vocation. Missional identity and practice are grounded in a twofold stance of contemplation and action. Disciple-making requires that we become deep listeners both to the culture around us and to the Holy Spirit. We cannot make disciples if we do not know the culture and if we cannot speak the language of our neighbors and will not discern what the Spirit is saying to the church. In order to retrieve a missional identity and become a church of contemplation and action, we will have to engage a number of critical challenges. Our identity, who are we really? Our ecclesiology, what do we understand that it means to be God's people who are gathered around Christ and called to participate in what the Holy Trinity is doing in the world? Do we really understand that? Do we really live our baptismal vows? Have we really become the broken bread and poured out wine? We have challenges with real estate, for crying out loud. Lots of buildings, and what are we going to do with them? And it costs a lot of money, and should we build a new building when we plant a new church? All these questions about buildings. And then, of course, we have bottom lines. Who's going to pay for what? We have the challenge of fewer and fewer congregations being able to support the salary and benefits of a full-time pastor. And so we have the challenge of what it looks like to do bivocational ministry well. And then we have the challenge of boundaries, of walls between what we consider appropriate to the academy and appropriate to the church and what should be kept out over there somewhere. And is mission here or is mission over there somewhere? Our understanding of ecclesiology, of what counts as real ministry, our understanding of the meaning of vocation, of what is needed in theological education and how best to provide it, our understanding of the ordination process all have to be re-examined in the bright light of radical culture shifts in which we find ourselves. For the church of the future to be fruitful and faithful and lively 
and Jesus-like, all of these must undergo change. No aspect of ministry that now exists is exempt from the need for careful evaluation and spirit-breathed change. Whether it is preaching, pastoral care, Christian education, ministries of music, or church planting. The church now and in the future needs spiritual leaders who are holy risk-takers, innovators, and intercessors. We need leaders who are people of contemplation and action, a new cadre of apostles, prophets, and evangelists sent out by the Holy Spirit to incarnate and teach the astonishing good news. The first challenge is to overcome the deeply ingrained belief that the church is a building where people gather for religious programs. Closely followed by the mistaken idea that the church and the worship gathering are one and the same, that church is the worship service. Related to these erroneous beliefs is the conviction, especially among mainline Christians, that a congregation is not fully established until it owns a building identified as the church. The belief that a church is a big building with pews and programs and professionals who carry out the ministry has led to a consumer model of ministry in which evangelism is understood to be a process of attracting unchurched people to come to the building called church. There they hear sermons and music that will hopefully attract them to Christ. Once they are churched, that is, regular attenders at the building, they will financially support the programs, the clergy, and the building. The programs preaching music and physical plan of the church are constantly evaluated and tweaked so as to prevent our customers, I mean members, from going to the church down the road that has a better youth ski trip, a better menu of options for all those people that are shopping for something. There are many theological problems with the building-centered consumer model of church. I hope you're aware of this. Beyond its ineffectiveness in taking the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, the most basic problem is that the Bible teaches us that the church is the organic body of Christ with one head, who is Jesus Christ. We are a living body. We are the people of God who are called created, gifted, and sent out in partnership with God and God's mission to the world. From Genesis to Revelation, the message is clear. The ecclesia is a God-gathered people, not a building. And our identity is rooted in God's redemptive healing mission, in who Christ is and how Christ is. We are to become the broken bread and poured out wine given to the world. Churching people does not necessarily make disciples of them. Sometimes churching inoculates them against real discipleship with its costly demands and its rigorous expectations. Churching can make us resist the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that calls us forth out of our Egypt into a new place to bear the good news. The word missio, from which we get missional and mission, means sent out. It's a Latin word, the sent out people. And the fruitful and spirit-led church of tomorrow will return to the scriptural understanding of church as the people of God participating in God's redemptive mission in the world. There will be a de-emphasis on owning and maintaining expensive buildings and a new emphasis on Christians mobilizing for worship and service 
in smaller, often multi-purpose spaces such as homes, office buildings, community centers, and the like. The use of borrowed space for worship will increasingly be seen as a responsible God-honoring practice. The former practice of building massive edifices to house worship for thousands of church attenders so that they can all be there at the same time will come to be seen as theologically misguided. Instead, there will be a return to tabernacle theology. Remember the tabernacle? The big tent that moves around? In which God's people are on the move in mission, thus in need of flexible, fluid ministry space, thus the very space in which worship and teaching take place will reflect missio, missional ecclesiology. The church's self-understanding as God's people sent out into the world with the good news Thriving churches of the future that do locate the center of their mission in a traditional church building, and there will be quite a few that do, will function with the ancient Celtic cathedral model. They will be anchor churches for a host of missional outposts that are localized, contextualized, and led by teams of well-prepared and well-guided laypeople. The ministry of the laity will be of central importance to the inherited church of the future. Ordained clergy will understand that their primary role is to equip the laity to offer faithful and fruitful ministry using their spiritual gifts and their resources and their social location. Congregations of the future will rise or fall depending on how well we respect, resource, and trust laity. We will return to a robust understanding and practice of the word liturgy, which in its original meaning, the ancient Greek meaning of the word liturgy that we use today, is the work of the people. And the, the meaning of it was, uh, was not religious. It was common citizens who give of themselves to work for the public good, the work of the people. Part of what will drive the move to smaller and more flexible meeting space as more normative and less uh, marginal in how we imagine church will be for the, for the missional disciple-making church, will be a more rigorous, canonic practice of stewardship. And by canonic, I'm referring to the word from Philippians 2, 6 through 11, that Christ emptied himself. He gave himself kenosis. So that is, as missional Christians look at their ministry budget, they will increasingly find ways to minimize the amount of money spent on their, themselves and their internal comfort, in order to maximize their financial resources for mission, the theology of Philippians 2, 6 through 11 will guide their embrace of a canonic, self-emptying identity that will help to heal the spiritual wounds inflicted on the world by power-hungry, mammon-intoxicated Christendom. By meeting in homes or other borrowed space for worship or by sharing a building between two or more congregations, Faithful, gospel-centric churches will free significant financial resources with which to provide ministry among suffering neighbors. This will be seen as a mature choice, a spiritually wise choice. Some congregations will choose to convert their large urban or suburban buildings into mission centers with seven-day-a-week ministries to hurting people. The hiring of staff in larger congregations will be evaluated in terms of missional priorities, so that staff equip Christians to use their time, talents, and treasure, including musical treasure, to reach out to a world in need. 
I'm excited to see what kind of music ministries evolve in the years ahead. The stewardship of money will be taught and practiced within a context of stewardship of God's creation, including a deep commitment to heal the environmental wounds that are a consequence of rampant consumerism. The missional disciple-making church will practice a modest, sustainable lifestyle in relation to its life as a congregation and individual practices of Christian stewardship. The fruitful Christ-honoring church will take seriously its responsibility to shape environmental healing with theological discourse and with a praxis of sustainability. Whereas in the 20th century, evangelism was overwhelmingly separated from social and environmental justice ministry and theology, in the missional church of the future, these three will reunite so that the good news of salvation is proclaimed holistically. Disciple-making will therefore include both spiritual formation and justice formation in the local church, and these will have central places in the church budget. In keeping with missional ecclesiology, a canonic stance, and more holistic practices of stewardship, the disciple-making church of the future will show preference for emerging leadership models that are more adaptable to the development of networks of small faith communities. In short, this will mean that churches will move toward deploying lead teams of bivocational pastors leading networks of small, active communities. While initially this move is already taking place out of economic necessity in some places, in time we will learn that missional vitality can thrive when the church is led by teams of well-trained bivocational people. In that scenario, the role of full-time ordained persons is overwhelmingly oriented toward leadership development, community organizer-in-chief, spiritual director and trainer of spiritual directors, and resident theologian. In mainline disciple-making churches, there will be an intentional retrieval of leadership practices from the apostolic first-century church, as well as from early Methodism and from the underground church in all eras of history in which Christianity has suffered persecution all of which bear wisdom for our rapidly changing cultural contexts. These leadership models will enable the church to deploy itself to a wide array of neighborhoods, particularly among those who are economically and in other ways disadvantaged. These models will make more sense in equipping a missional church that is arrayed as networks of small, praying, active communities in which every member participates in mission. Bivocationality will increasingly be seen as a preferred missiological strategy for leadership rather than as a temporary situation until a church becomes successful, which means having a building and a full-time pastor who does most of the ministry of the church, and so on. Because of this shift toward bivocationality, new models of theological education will emerge in order to equip Christians for bivocational leadership. Theological seminaries, schools of divinity, including Duke Divinity School, will be challenged to adapt to the new leadership needs of the church, including a move toward decentralization with more hybrid classes with a flipped classroom, short intensives, and an online component of learning, more non-degree programs for comprehensive theological education for lay people, that is, lay seminaries that are located in missional hubs, and the adaptation of curriculum and traditional master's degree programs and doctors of ministry programs so that students are better equipped for missional leadership in emerging contexts. The flexibility and creativity that will be necessary for these new leadership models 
and new forms of theological education to emerge will generate increasing pressure within what are currently, at times, fixed systems of ecclesiastical polity and theological education in many of our denominations. Indeed, that pressure is already at work, evident in the growing number of churches that can only afford a part-time pastor, the growing number of United Methodist annual conferences that are, emer- that are merging, downsizing of denominational offices, boards, and agencies, and so on. The pressure is also evident today in the increasing number of pastors and church staff within and beyond traditional denominations who gain their missional theological formation not from traditional seminaries, but from alternative means, including regional teaching churches that have become centers for ministry, training centers. This is a critical time for us in theological education to pay attention to shifting culture and the resultant shifting needs for theological education for the church. We have tremendous resources here at Duke University and at our Divinity School. We have churches and nonprofits and other institutions in our surrounding cities and rural contexts, and with emerging movements such as Fresh Expressions, Missional Wisdom, nonviolent uh, movements for social change and environmental justice, and much more. We have great opportunities right here to work collaboratively in developing these new forms of theological education alongside our traditional forms of theological education. And we need to do both to prepare leaders for the church of tomorrow. In the last century, the bureaucratization of all mainline denominations resulted in clearly defined boxes for church, academy, and mission. The walls of those boxes are now becoming more permeable the lines between them more blurred in a trend that will only increase for those denominations and non-denominations that determine to cultivate missional churches. Thus, the missional disciple-making church will increasingly be marked by hybridity in the mutual work between church, academy, and the world beyond both. Larger mainline churches that remain viable will do so in part because they become much more focused on leadership development for God's mission rather than for institutional survival. This will be done in tandem with seminaries, schools of theology like this one. Similarly, theological seminaries that survive and thrive will do so because they are much more in partnership with healthy missional churches as an integral part of their program. And not just churches, but missional uh, movements. A A recent study just came out from Auburn Institute noting that the Schools of theology and the seminaries that are attracting young, gifted, called millennials who who are called to transform the world, Uh, the schools that are doing this sort of hybrid engagement with missional movements beyond the classroom and connecting it to the classroom are attracting more and more students. The increasing use of decentralized, contextualized learning environments outside of the seminary buildings will be critically important to the vital seminary of the future. In summary, any boxing in of church, seminary, or mission that stifles the emerging work of the Holy Spirit will give way to hybridity for disciple-making churches of the future. So will counterproductive features of ordination systems. We have to think about who's being ordained and what kind of skills we want ordained people to have and what kind of work we expect ordained people to do. 
During times of great cultural change, as Phyllis Tickle notes in The Great Emergence, what is always at stake and what is always challenged as the new work of God emerges is the location of ecclesiastical authority. Ordination is a traditional bestowal of positional authority for persons who are called to pastoral leadership that includes ministries of word, sacrament, and order. That's the way we say it in the United Methodist Church, but something like that exists in most denominations. Over the past 500 years, ordination in mainline denominations gradually came to require advanced theological degrees and was predicated upon the expectation of ministry as a profession and a career. Ministry was to be under the supervision and much of it carried out by professional clergy. It was and still is a system with hierarchies of power where congregants tend to form the base of the pyramid. Boundaries were clear, and even our architecture and churches reflect this. In many congregations, the the church at the front looks like a gated community, and the pastor lives on the other side of the gate. (laughs) The clergy gradually became a gated community presiding at the front of the building called church. The pyramidal structure will not remain in its current shape as cultural emergence continues with its flattening and decentralization of authority. As a result, the meaning of ordination and what counts as a gift and call toward ordination will undergo change. The gated community is losing its fence, and that's a good thing. The story is told in Mark 2, 1 through 12, about five friends with a, five friends with a stretcher who could not get through the crowd to Jesus. Do you remember this story? The friend on the stretcher was paralyzed and silent. We don't hear about him in the story. We hear about him, but we don't hear from him in the story. And his infirmity was both spiritual and physical. As the four who were mobile looked at the hindrances to their healing mission, they devised the extraordinary plan. They would open a hole in the roof above the room where Jesus was teaching, a room, by the way, which was in the house where Jesus lived. Jesus did ministry in his house. What does it mean to follow a Christ who does ministry in his house? I'm just asking. They would create a hole, and they would lower their friend down into the center right in front of Jesus. And nobody could get away because the room was packed. So in this way, they would remove the obstacles and make it easy for their friend to encounter the great physician The friends followed through with the daring plan, and the outcome was a new disciple who was healed of his affliction and forgiven of his sin. These friends represent missional Christians whom the Holy Spirit is calling to open a hole in the roof of the church and the roof of the academy. They demonstrate the kind of resourcefulness, persistence, and the deep faith of missional leaders of tomorrow who will understand, engage, and overcome the obstacles to disciple-making in a post-Christendom world. Such Christians will be risk-takers, innovators, and intercessors. They will be people of contemplation and action, a new cadre of apostles sent out by the Holy Spirit with the good news of Jesus' love. The opening in the roof of a post-Christendom church is already at hand, evident in a host of grassroots renewal movements within and beyond the mainline church. Significant among these are the new monastic movement, fresh expressions, missional wisdom, the missional church conversation. 
These and other grassroots movements and experiments involve missional Christians moving the church out of the church building and into the world where Jesus is already out there waiting and beckoning, going outside the walls to meet Jesus. Community organizing and spiritual formation are key ministry practices. The retrieval of contemplative practices and a rule of life, coupled with a commitment to inhabit the neighborhood and love and serve the neighbors well, are common to emergence Christianity. In other words, a renewal of a sense of geographic parish is afoot. These movements take seriously the massive cultural shifts in the United States and are grounded in missional ecclesiologies. As we neared the close of the 20th century, we thought that the way to evangelize was for the church to focus on attracting people to us, to focus on marketing. We even had marketing seminars. We wanted to market the church. We celebrated churches that could produce a professional program, and for many people, that meant a lot of flash, something entertaining, something entertaining fun, jazzy, awesome, big. We wanted that so that people would come to church in the first place, and we thought the point was to get people into the church buildings and programs because if they would just come into the program and the building, we could unleash the professionals on them, and then they would follow Jesus. We also developed professional clergy who learned how to present a good argument about God and explain lots of doctrines about God and the history of doctrines about God. And we expected our highly educated leaders to evangelize our neighbors once we got the neighbors into the church building. We just thought it would happen. But God's way of evangelism is the path of Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Real incarnation real human beings in real neighborhoods, in community, engaged with real life and real suffering, serving real people. God's method requires vulnerability, presence, and authentic community, an alternative community. God's method is of a different order altogether. There is no cookie cutter. There are no professionals who do the incarnation while the rest of us watch and make comments. Gospel bearing, the apostolic life, the living out of the Apostles' Creed is not a profession, it's not a career. It is the reality of people living baptismal vows, being broken bread and poured out wine for the world that Jesus loves. God calls weak, trembling, ordinary, vulnerable people to do apostolic life together in community, and that's how Jesus gets the job done. The proof of the gospel comes through demonstrations of the spirit and power in community. And can we imagine any greater miracle and sign of the spirit's power than to experience racial reconciliation and healing right here in this part of the South? What a sign and a witness and a testimony that would be. Today we are at an unprecedented turning point in the history of the church. The only way we will gain a hearing with our neighbors, with the nuns, the nuns, there are more nuns voting in the presidential election this year than there are evangelicals. Did you know that? 
I wonder what this is going to do to the future of politics. The only way we'll gain a hearing, the only way we can connect with our neighbor, with Christ now, is through incarnation, through living as an alternative community that is shaped by the canonic hymn, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, among our neighbors. And this is not a bad thing. This is not the death of the church. Rather, we are on the front end of a new reformation. We are watching and participating in the rebirth of the church for such a time as this. The choice is ours. We all have the choice day by day, and we lead our congregations into the choice. And the question is this, are we willing to show up, pay attention, cooperate with what God is calling us to do and say and be, and release the outcome of that obedience? Will we do it? Amen.